This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Thanks for joining us on the second episode of the new 2018 year. I'm joined by Dr. Paxton Back, a familiar old face, and he has some hot topics to talk about today. Paxton, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks, Kieran. Thanks to have you back, and uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, tell us, Paxton, what article did you choose for this week? All right. So, Kieran, this week I chose an article that was published out of JAMA late last year that actually got quite a bit of attention in the lay press. It's entitled, Effect of a Single Dose of Oral Opioid and Non-Opioid Analgesics on Acute Extremity Pain in the Emergency Department. Ah, opioids are definitely all over the news these days, and this sounds like a relevant question whether you can have short-term opioid therapy and how effective it is. So tell us, Paxton, what is the bottom line for this article? So yeah, as you said, this is an article as near and dear to my heart as somebody who, who uh, does work, uh, I spent a significant amount of my time doing addiction medicine. The bottom line from this trial is that in this particular situation, they found no benefit to opioid combination medications versus non-opioids in treatment of this acute extremity pain. Wow, it seems like we're learning more and more every day just how ineffective opioids can be in several different situations. So tell us, Paxton, beyond your interest and expertise in addiction medicine, why did you choose this article? I mean, like as you said, Kieran, this is such a hot topic these days, and it really is something that I think we're finally starting to pay a lot of attention to. There's no question that opioid addiction is the biggest epidemic of our time, of yours and my my time in practice. And no matter what statistics you're using to, to frame it, a major contributor to the current opioid crisis has been iatrogenic. It has been related to physician prescription, and I think we need to own that. I think Despite the known dangers associated with opioid use, though, we still generally regard them as the most effective means of, of analgesia for acute pain. And, and often we tend to go to them first line without really thinking about it because, you know, we have this idea that they are the most effective in the short term. In spite of that, though, no real study, multiple studies have suggested that non-opioid combinations are pretty good, uh, but no trial has ever really compared relative analgesic effects from the most common opioid and non-opioid combinations all at the same time. Well, this is an important trial then to be completed, especially in the age of, at least across North America, opioid overdose and opioid addiction. So tell us, Paxton, what was the design of this study and where did it take place? So this is a fairly straightforward trial, which is one of the, the, the nice things about it is it's, it's a classic double-blinded randomized control trial. It was ran between in 2015 and 2016 in the Bronx in New York at two different emergency rooms, both attached to a single academic center there. And who were the patients that they included in this trial? Um, so they, as I mentioned, enrolled over about a year, and they enrolled all adult patients between the ages of 20 and 64 years old who were presenting to the emergency department over that time with an acute onset of extremity pain, which they just defined as any pain originating distal to the hip or to the shoulder. All of the patients enrolled in this trial required a indication for imaging at the discretion of the emergency physician, and that allowed for the built-in delay that was actually needed to perform this study. Um, where they were actually taking pain scores over time in the emergency room. Patients were excluded if they were on methadone or other opioids, if they had a chronic disease requiring frequent use of pain control. One of the examples is something like sickle cell anemia and associated pain crises. Also, if anyone had any adverse reaction in the past to study medications, had recently taken the study medications, or a whole host of other chronic conditions that may affect their response, they were excluded. 
So we're talking about your average adult who comes to the emergency department with pain in an extremity. We're talking sprains, fractures, lacerations, and, and they all require imaging enough that you, you have to have enough time that your pain needs to be treated. Is that kind of what the design is here? That's exactly it. Just generally, like they tended to be younger, fairly well people otherwise who were presenting with most often traumatic pain to an extremity. Okay. So what did they do as the intervention to treat this pain? How did they compare it to other analgesic options? So as I mentioned, Kieran, this is a, a very clinically relevant, I think, um, trial in, in that they actually checked, tested four different arms against one another. Essentially, patients showed up to the emergency room, they were randomized, and they were given a blinded dose of one of these four analgesic combinations. So the first combination was the, the non-opioid combination, and that was a combination of ibuprofen, 400 milligrams of ibuprofen, and 1,000 milligrams of acetaminophen. So sort of our, our usual doses, I think, of those two medications. Then they had three opioid arms. One of them was receiving um, oxycodone and acetaminophen combination, also known as Percocet. One was receiving hydrocodone and acetaminophen combination, also known as Vicodin. And one was receiving a codeine acetaminophen combination, or a Tylenol-3. Uh, so patients presented, they were randomized, a pain score was measured at baseline on just a what's called the 11-point numerical writing scale. In other words, rate your pain at a 0 to 10. They were measured at baseline, given their blinded medication, and then they had their pain score reassessed at hour 1 and hour 2. And what would happen if somebody's pain was inadequately controlled after a certain amount of time had lapsed? Mm -hmm. So they did have a built-in concession for that and that at the physician's discretion, if the pain was, if they felt the pain was out of control, they were permitted to give them unblinded additional doses of oxycodone. So there's an additional five milligrams of oxycodone sort of rescue dose that was available to patients if the physician felt like they needed it. Uh, and how did they measure the success of the treatment strategies for pain in these patients? Uh, so as I mentioned, their, their primary outcome was based off that initial pain assessment, their 10-point scale, which again is literally where is your pain on a scale of 0 to 10. But they did look at a few secondary outcomes. They, they looked also at a Likert scale rating. So is your pain none, mild, moderate, or severe? They also looked at the number of PRN doses used in those patients who require those additional breakthroughs. And then they also looked at a few subgroups, including patients who ended up being diagnosed with a fracture in the end or those who presented with 10 out of 10 presentation and whether those with that particularly high level of pain um, had a different result. Okay. And these pain scores were measured generally at two hours, so the medications had time to come on and hit their peak effect but not start to wear off. Exactly. The primary outcome was the two-hour pain score. They measured it at one hour as well, but that was their primary outcome was was when the peak analgesia effect was supposed to have taken place. Okay, so what were the main findings of this study then? So it was interesting. They ended up enrolling and randomizing 411 patients to these four different groups. The average age of those patients, as I mentioned, was they're fairly young and uncomplicated, not exactly our classic patients maybe as internists in Canada, um, but the average age was 37, roughly 50% male, 50% female, Two-thirds of them ended up being diagnosed with a sprain or a strain, while just less than one-third actually had a real diagnosis of a fracture. And their baseline pain scale when they presented the emergency room was actually 8.7 out of 10, so fairly significant number of pain. Wow. That seems, that seems I mean, I, I know individuals' ratings of pain is just that individual, but 
I can't imagine, I don't imagine myself as a strain or a sprain rating that pain as 8.7 out of 10. I'm not sure about you. Yeah, it's it's certainly high. Um, I'm not sure whether that reflects the severity of the injuries that were enrolled or if that's just one of those things where, you know, patients will present with uh, some injury and often we, we often we do hear, oh, it's 10 out of 10, doc. So uh, hard to say. Okay. And so what about the decreases in the, in the pain scores then at, at their primary outcome of two hours? So the decreases in pain were actually fairly impressive at two hours. So it was by the different groups, their score dropped from anywhere from 3.5 to 4.4 points by group, but there was actually no statistical differences between any of the groups. When you actually look at those subgroups, looking at about about 20% of the patients involved ended up needing those rescue doses. And when they looked at that subgroup, there was, again, no, no real difference between the groups in terms of pain scores or amount of rescue dose needed. When they restricted this to people with fractures, there was no difference. Really, across the board, they could not tease out any benefit to the opioids versus that non-opioid combination. Yeah, I got to say, I mean, it's a fairly interesting finding, I think. So regardless of the fact that you have people rating their pain as very severe or at least definitely significant with an 8.7 out of 10, we make a big impact on those pain scores regardless of the treatment strategy. I mean, I think that's that's reassuring to know that all of those different strategies reduce pain significantly, no matter how bad it was to begin with. Yeah, I, and I think I think... I am just as guilty as the next person is when I see somebody in acute pain in the hospital, I reach for hydromorphone. That's that's that tends to be my go-to. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but this certainly does give you pause when you're when you're faced with that situation and think about those non-opioid analgesics. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, any interesting points or observations you wanted to make? Things that caught your eye, Paxson? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the important thing with this study, it got, as I mentioned, it got a lot of media attention because of the opioid crisis and because you know the the headline is is non-opioids as good for analgesia as opioid combinations i think i think you have to take this study with a grain of salt because it's a very specific situation right this is a, a younger person with an acute presentation in the emergency room a very short amount of follow-up time subjective pain scoring fairly low doses of of medication being given, right? These are single tablets of oxycodone or, or, or sorry, of uh, Percocet or Vicodin. It's very, it's, it's, it's very specific and how applicable this is to sort of a broader context is certainly a, a valid question. I mean, I completely agree. I, I think it's probably very relevant to a lot of emergency medicine physicians, and this is what they see and deal with a lot of, and probably a lot of family physicians too. But I, I mean, I would agree with you, certainly in medicine, you know, we would deal with pathological fractures and hip fractures and, you know, major, more proximal bone fractures as opposed to a distal traumatic extremity uh, injury. But nevertheless, I think it has important implications across the board. And I think that's just it, is, is, is in, in spite of that, the fact that this is fairly restricted, I think it really highlights the fact that we underappreciate how good of an analgesic acetaminophen and ibuprofen and our other NSAIDs are. We often don't really consider those when we're talking about pain management in our patients and we just titrate their opioids. And this really should, even though this is not the scenario you or I typically work in, this really should give us pause and actually... Um, rethink our pain management strategy when we are giving patients opioids and you know they're continuing to ask for more and i think sort of to extend on upon what you said perhaps this study will give me pause before i reflexively jump to the hydromorphone as i as i do too admittedly maybe i'll i'll try to push those non-opioid analgesic options a little bit further and see how much bang for my buck i can get out of them 
Absolutely, or at least at least give them more of a consideration. Hopefully, before uh, before we jump to our hydromorph. So just just summarize for us, uh, for our listeners, Paxton, what were the main points you wanted individuals to get out of this study? So I think just to reiterate the main message here, the crux of this trial is that in a, in a randomized blinded control trial where 400 people presented to the emergency room with acute pain, that non-opioid analgesics performed as well as combination opioid analgesics in relieving that acute pain. Fantastic. I think there's a lot to be learned from this uh, particular trial. Well, thanks, Paxton. Let's move on to the study that I chose for this week. And I think that this is a really exciting study. I might even go so far as to say that this is going to be a game changer. Oh, my God, I can't believe I used that term. Uh, And I was so excited about this study that I hogged it all for myself and didn't give it to my co-hosts to be able to cover. Uh, And this, Paxton, is the study of edoxaban in treatment for cancer-associated venous thromboembolism. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in December of 2017, and the first author was Gary Raxob. I I agree with you, Kieran. I was really excited to see this trial. I just think of the the look on a patient's face when I tell them that they're going to have to do daily daltaparin injections indefinitely, and that like crestfallen look on their face is it's 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 heartbreaking. So I was very excited to see this trial come out in the New England Journal. Uh, tell us again, what, or tell us then what the bottom line is for this article. So this was also a randomized control trial, and it included over a 1,000 patients with cancer-associated venous thromboembolism, and it found that treatment with daily adoxaban, which is a direct oral anticoagulant, one of these DOACs that we're familiar with now, was found to be non-inferior when compared to standard treatment with low molecular weight heparin with respect to recurrent venous thromboembolism or the development of major bleeding over a one-year period. Wow. So this really could be a game changer then for the treatment of VTE and certainly for the makers of adoxaban. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, and the reason I chose this study is, you know, from the CLOT trial and several other studies, we've found that and established that low molecular weight heparin is really the gold standard treatment up until now, potentially, for cancer-associated VTE. Um, because previous head-to-head comparisons with low molecular weight heparin and warfarin clearly demonstrated superiority with respect to the recurrence of VTE when treated with low molecular weight heparin. But no trial to date has directly compared these DOACs or NOACs, the new anticoagulants, to low molecular weight heparin. So low molecular weight heparin is expensive. Uh, If you don't have coverage, it's very expensive. It requires daily injections, which is somewhat inconvenient for a lot of individuals, especially if you're not comfortable delivering your own injections. And there's in considerable interest in trying to evaluate an oral medication that does not require INR monitoring, such as warfarin. Wow, yeah, so an oral option just takes so much of the logistics out of this. It's that, that, that could, be, could be pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, let's get into the details then. So you mentioned this is an RCT. Tell us a little bit more about the study design. So this was conducted as an open-label trial, so individuals and, and physicians uh, knew which drug that their patients were taking and it was designed as a non-inferiority randomized control trial. So rather than looking for, is adoxaban better than low molecular weight heparin, they asked the question, is it non-inferior to? It's conducted in 114 centers across 13 countries. So a big, big trial. Wow, so that's a, that's a massive undertaking, certainly. Uh, and who are the patients they enrolled? Fairly straightforward, which is kind of nice to keep it simple. So Adults who had acute symptomatic or incidentally found venous thromboembolism, those were defined as proximal deep vein thromboses or a segmental or higher pulmonary embolism, so not subsegmental pulmonary emboli. They had to have coexisting cancer. 
Now, they excluded basal cell or squamous cell skin cancers, but other cancers across the board were included. And those cancers needed to be active or had been diagnosed within the prior two years. And they included individuals if they were already on anticoagulation for another indication, like atrial fibrillation, for example, um, if they had significant bleeding risk, or if they had poor performance status. Okay. And did they have a pretty good breadth of of, uh, different types of cancers that was enrolled? They actually did. So it turned out about 90% were solid tumors, but there was a fairly large breadth of the types of cancer that they had, you know, from basically any cancer that you can think of really across the board. Oh, great. So pretty widely applicable uh, patient population. And uh, what what was the primary question here? What were they doing? So every patient who had the diagnosed VTE received five days of low molecular weight heparin upfront. And then after that five-day period, they were randomized to receive either a 60 milligram dose of edoxaban, which is the standard dose for this medication, or the typical weight-based dose of low molecular weight heparin at your standard doses of 200 international units per kilogram for 30 days. And then they taper that down to 150 international units per kilogram daily thereafter. Okay, all right, so pretty straightforward intervention then. Yeah, and, and I wanted to mention then, then they did something kind of neat. They stratified groups according to underlying bleeding risk, and they characterized this bleeding risk as you were considered high bleeding risk if you'd had surgery within the prior two weeks, if you were on coexisting antiplatelet medications, if you had widely metastatic cancer if you had a brain cancer, or if you had a gastrointestinal or urothelial cancer, these were all high risk for bleeding. So they also sort of further stratified grouped patients into strata of high and low bleeding risk amongst those different arms. Okay, so we're not talking about a subgroup analysis here, we're actually talking about stratifying them in terms of which group they're randomized to. Yeah, and you do this in a trial when you think that something like this, bleeding risk, is so important on the outcome, and the outcome is actually a composite of bleeding and or recurrent, sorry, and recurrent VTE, that you you actually separate the patients up front instead of doing an after-the-fact kind of analysis. So that's how strongly they felt that these uh, factors influenced somebody's bleeding risk. And just the last thing I would say is they treated these patients for six months at minimum, and then up to 12 months, uh, which was determined by the treating physician. And that's a point of interest because most people in Canada, for sure, and I would think most across North America, would say that you you would treat somebody indefinitely with anticoagulation until their cancer is quote-unquote cured or something else comes up that you know shifts the balance of risks and benefits as far as continuing anticoagulation. But in this case, they allowed patients to be stopped after six months if the treating physician thought that they should stop. Huh, interesting. Okay, and, and how long was the follow-up in these patients? So the answer to the follow-up uh, question, Paxson, is that it can be varied. They followed patients for a minimum of nine months, but uh, generally were followed for 12 months or until the end of the trial. So on average, around 12 months at a year, but... It's somewhat variable. And so um, and so, at the end of that time then, Kieran, what, uh, what were they looking for? What were their outcomes? Yeah, so the primary outcome was a composite of recurrent, symptomatic, or incidental venous thromboembolism and major bleeding. And then their secondary outcomes were, as usual, the components of the composite primary outcome, so individually major bleeding or recurrent VTE. Uh, they also looked at minor bleeding and they looked at death. Okay, and what did they find? So just over a thousand patients were enrolled. The average age of individuals were 64 years old. 
98% of them had active cancer, and as I mentioned, 90% were solid tumors. About 60% of the patients had pulmonary emboli, as, as opposed to 40% with DVTs. And about half of those pulmonary emboli were actually discovered incidentally on a scan that was done for different reasons. So they weren't really symptomatic per se uh, from these pulmonary emboli. So with regards to the primary outcome, just about 13% of individuals in each arm experienced the primary outcome of recurrent VTE or major bleeding. The specific numbers were 12.8% in the adoxivan arm and 13.5% in the low molecular weight heparin arm. That's an absolute risk reduction of 0.7% with adoxivan and uh, the non-inferiority margin was met. So it was a significant finding, a positive trial. Okay, so just as an aside there for a second, by non-inferiority, you mean they, a priori, they defined what would mean something was non-inferiority rather than met that, but you can't say it's superior? Absolutely. So you set a margin above a difference between the two and say if, so long as the primary outcome occurs within this margin that we set, usually two, sometimes three standard deviations above the, the mean event rate in the control arm, then you say it's not inferior to the other. That's not to say it's the same, it's just that it's not better and it's not worse. And to your point about superiority, it's definitely not superior to low molecular weight heparin. So when you look at those sort of secondary outcomes when they break the primary apart into its two components, we saw recurrent venous thromboembolism in 7.9% of individuals with doxivan versus 11.3%. So you're, kind of, you're getting close to 3.5% risk reduction there. And that separation occurred at about three months. And what was driving that difference was really symptomatic deep vein thromboses. Uh, there was a lower rate of those in individuals on adoxaban. Uh, wow. So even on anticoagulation, still really high reoccurrence rates uh, at one year. Just highlights, I guess, how, how thrombophilic these cancers can be. Yeah. And these are, remember, mainly solid tumors. So, you know, I, I imagine you would see even higher in hematologic malignancies as well. The other component of the primary outcome was major bleeding, and it was a counterbalancing measure to the uh, efficacy of adoxaban. We saw a bit more bleeding in the adoxaban arm, 6.9% versus 4%, and this was a significant finding, a significant difference between the two. And that, that occurred immediately on a timeline sort of uh, spectrum, and it's generally driven by uh, gastrointestinal bleeding in patients who had gastrointestinal cancers, actually. Wow, so that's a pretty interesting uh, wrinkle then to this trial and, and maybe something that, that will have some significance in terms of clinical application. Uh, just in general terms then, anything else you want to highlight about this trial or kind of what is your take on this? Yeah, I think um, one of the important things to, sh to demonstrate which speaks to the inconvenience of low molecular weight heparin is that treatment durations in general were shorter in individuals who are taking low molecular weight heparin. And, and that was on the order of about 30 days or so, so about a month uh, difference between the two. And I think that that, you know, we don't, we don't know the reasons specifically why, but I think you can safely sort of assume that some of that is due to the inconvenience of taking low molecular weight heparin and subsequent sort of lower adherence when it comes to patients who have to deal with that. And that is definitely of practical clinical importance. Yeah, I think that's that's certainly uh, my experience is that nobody likes to give themselves a daily uh, sub-Q shot, even in hospital, let alone for months at a time. Uh, again, just to clarify, when you had talked about 
a higher bleeding risk in the adoxaben arm. You'd said that all is up front, though. That is not related to the duration of anticoagulation in these patients? No, that if you look at the curves, that the separation occurs immediately. So as soon as they start taking the anticoagulants, and as I mentioned, it's due to people who are bleeding from their gut, and typically those individuals had an underlying gastrointestinal cancer to begin with. So if they don't start bleeding right off the bat, then hopefully you're you're safe. Yeah. Or safer. Safer, yeah. you got about a 5% risk overall as an event rate, but, but no difference between the two arms. Got it. Okay. So just then take a step back, broad picture. What is the main learning point of this article, Kieran? Yeah, and this is where, you know, I think it comes to be a major change for clinical practice you'll see coming in down the line uh, in the fact that when you treat somebody with adoxaban, and you might represent adoxaban across the board for all DOACs, like apixaban and rivaroxaban, they appear to be equally as effective or they're non-inferior to low molecular weight heparin in cancer-associated venous thromboembolism treatment. But keep in mind that there, there's sort of the, that non-inferiority is counterbalanced by, you know, you have lower, lower rates of recurrent VTE, but higher rates of major bleeding. So you could make some nuanced decisions around your patient and what would be a better sort of treatment strategy based on the sort of balances of bleeding risk versus recurrence of VTE risk. Hmm. So do you think this is going to, this will change your practice? Will you use adoxaban? I, I absolutely will talk to my patients and offer them and, and probably make the recommendation to use adoxaban and use this trial to quote the numbers to help in this decision making overall. Uh, interesting, even in a GI cancer. Well, I think that's sort of where the nuanced decision might come to be, where I would say, listen, you know, this is going to be a higher risk with your GI cancer if they've had GI bleeds previously, then I might start to lean more towards low molecular weight heparin, but that's going to be on an individual uh, basis. Yeah, it gives you at least the tools to have that discussion, I think, which is definitely a step forward. I, I think so, too. I think you're going to see a major change uh, in treatment of cancer-associated thromboemboli. Awesome. Well, Paxton... Great week, great topics. On to my favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we're reading about. Paxton, what's catching your eye this week? Uh, so I was reading a, a darker article this week about the dark web, Kieran. And I'm going to go back to talking a little bit more about opioids. As, as I mentioned to you, I work a fair amount in addiction medicine. And from patients and even just friends of mine and people I run into on the street, I always get asked about fentanyl and where this is coming from, where this fentanyl crisis that we're having is swept the West Coast. It's it's moving across the country. But where did it come from? So I was reading an article uh, in the New York Times this week. It's actually an article from last year, but I just stumbled across it. It talks all about the dark web and Bitcoin and the purchase of illicit fentanyl and the mailing of fentanyl in from China and other Asian countries. And it, it's quite an interesting look into how easily trafficked this substance is and kind of where it's coming from. And it, it answers some of those questions, I think, that everyone asks that, you know, this has come out of left field and like what has led to this? And I think it, it gives us a bit of a peek behind that curtain. Hmm. Dark. Okay, well, I have a different topic this week, but I was reading an interesting perspective, uh, actually a viewpoint in JAMA. And I'm, I'm going to ask you this question, Paxton, because it really hits close to home. Have you ever described to a patient as you're about to do a procedure for them that the worst part of the procedure is actually the lidocaine or the anesthesia that you're going to give them? And it kind of feels like a bee sting that's only going to last 20 seconds. And don't worry, that's the worst part of the procedure. Everything will be fine after that. 
Uh, it sounds like like a stock line that I that I deliver to patients in the ICU. Yeah, it was uncanny when I read this because it's like every time I do that, it's pretty much exactly what I say. Well, it turns out that words can hurt, and literally they can hurt. And by that, I mean that physicians should be careful in the choice of words that they use. So this article talks about how the physician's choice of words can actually inadvertently amplify patients' symptoms and become a source of heightened somatic distress for them. So this is an effect that the author you know, posits should be understood by physicians to ensure that optimal management of their patients are received. And there, there's lots of good examples as to how this is and why this is, but just a couple for, for the sake of the show. If you tell somebody about the non-specific ambiguous adverse effects of a drug, things like, you know, fatigue, difficulty concentrating, nausea, dizziness, etc. You actually see in well-designed trials and studies that it increases the frequency with which those conditions are reported and experienced by patients. The same can be said if you convey results of dubious clinical significance such as like the plain radiograph for low back pain. Um, and if you look at patients who had that information conveyed to them compared to those not individuals with low back pain, those patients will report worse back pain symptoms when you're sort of said, oh yeah, you have some degenerative disc disease and that's, you know, probably contributing to your pain. So the idea of this article is to say you should pay careful attention to what and how information you convey to your patients because it actually can influence overall the symptomatology that they will experience. And so... I thought to myself, wow, maybe I'll change my language in describing, uh, you know, analgesia for a procedure. Things like natural and neutral language that says, this is going to relieve your pain, you won't feel anything after that, rather than focusing on how it's going to hurt like a bee sting, and it will be fine afterwards. Sort of like a verbal placebo effect. Kind of like a placebo, verbal placebo effect. In fact, they call it a nocebo effect. All right. Well, I'll, I will keep that in mind next time I'm putting in a central line. A lot of thought for change this week on the rounds table, I would say. Paxson, Happy New Year. Great to join us. As always, thank you for coming on the show. We look forward to having you back soon. You bet, Kieran. The rounds table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstable podcast. The roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of the roundstable, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research because who knows what they have in store for us. 